2: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365
1: day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: One of the real accomplishments, and it often gets overlooked in Secretary Albright, you're Jesse Helms was the chairman of the Senate uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, and she built a positive, constructive, forward-looking relationship with him that most of us would have thought impossible, given their political, cultural, and many other kinds of differences. And that enabled a lot more, I mean, it enabled the NATO involvement in the Balkans, for
0: example. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 4th, 2022. Madeleine Albright passed away on March 23rd. She was the first woman secretary of state in United States history and had a long legacy, both from her time as secretary and beyond. To talk through what made her special and what her impact was, I chatted in the virtual jungle studio with Corey Shockey and Natalie Orpet. Corey is the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She worked in the Department of Defense, the Department of State and the National Security Council staff. Natalie Orpet is the Executive Editor of Lawfare and she worked with Secretary Albright as her Executive Assistant after she had left the Department of State. We talked about some of the foreign policy developments during Secretary Albright's tenure we talked about her personal relationships, including with those she did not agree with. And we talked about her legacy when it comes to helping women in national security positions. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 4th. The Legacy of Madeleine Albright with Corey Shockey and Natalie Orpet. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the legacy of Madeleine Albright. And Corey, I'd like to start with you because you were in the national security establishment when she was secretary. I believe you were actually at the Pentagon for part or all of her time as secretary. And I'm wondering if you can start us off by talking a little bit about the operating relationships that Secretary Albright had with not only counterparts at the Pentagon, but elsewhere inside the national security establishment in the U.S. government?
2: So she had excellent relationships with the people who do European stuff. In particular, uh, so I was the NATO desk officer in the joint staff at the mm-hmm. time and working on development of the Partnership for Peace. And then the watching her crisp professionalism, I went to Europe uh, with General Sholley, who was the assistant to the chairman, to sell the Partnership for Peace to a deeply skeptical and unhappy set of Eastern European governments who wanted NATO membership.
0: And they wanted it now.
2: And they wanted it now, and Secretary Albright wanted it now for them. But she and General Sholley got sent as the two most prominent, visibly uh, Europeans in the high levels of the Clinton administration, they got sent precisely because it would be harder for the Eastern Europeans to be rude to them. And yet Lech Valenza braced her up and complained. And the professionalism with which she defended a policy she didn't agree with was a real lesson to all of the rest of us. And that incredibly creative and positive relationship contrasted pretty starkly with the friction between Secretary Albright and General Powell, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, over her activism for some American role in the Balkan Wars. And she didn't know what it should be, and she didn't know what it could be, But she was adamant, and it was captured in an unpleasant exchange between her and General Powell, when she said in an NSC meeting, if you're not going to use this fabulous military, how about loaning it to one of the rest of us? Which was a denigration of both his expertise and a sign of uh, how much more influential his view of the conflict was than hers in shaping Clinton policy.
0: And it really reflected, uh, Corey, if I understand right those times, it really reflected some some really deep issues that the highest levels of the US government was struggling with, that there were legitimate concerns uh, on all sides. The policy path forward was not entirely clear, and there were really good arguments on all sides. And of course, Secretary Albright had her opinions on that, but but she found a way to ultimately work with others who had very different opinions from hers to help President Clinton move the policy forward.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And it's probably most evident in the Kosovo War.
0: Yeah, talk through that a little bit, because that's something that, unfortunately, for some of our listeners, uh, especially on the younger side, that may seem like ancient history but it is not, and that was a that was a really tricky problem, and she played a prominent role in moving that forward.
2: It was a tricky problem in terms of uh, what you could do about it. It was a tricky problem in the sense that you know NATO out-of-area operations were still new, and it was especially tricky because NATO countries choosing to go to war in defense of Kosovars without a UN Security Council resolution endorsing it was, you know, monumental for Germany to agree to that and for the other NATO allies to agree to it. And so producing the political consensus to move forward was an enormous achievement on Secretary Albright's part and can maybe be measured in a story that I wasn't personally part of, but which made the rounds of policymaking at the time, which was the surprise and a little bit resentment on the part of the National Security Advisor, Sandy Berger, and on President Clinton's part, Mm -hmm. that Secretary Albright had moved this policy so far forward they couldn't back away from it, and yet they had wanted to spend the time on Social Security reform, not on the Balkan Wars.
0: It's funny how President after president has a, a similar and it's always somewhere else in the world but has a similar arc of wanting to focus on whether it's social security reform or or healthcare or education reform and yet the world has different ideas and there's going to be a foreign policy crisis that ends up demanding their attention natalie let me turn to you briefly we'll talk a little bit later about your direct personal experience with, with Madeleine Albright. But first, I want to talk about when she was Secretary of State, because you were watching her from afar. You were, well, a teenager and then going, going to college. But you wrote recently in your Lawfare piece about your experience with Secretary Albright, that you were quite aware of her role as Secretary of State, and you actually found some inspiration from her. Talk through that a little bit. What did you witness even before you knew you would ultimately be working with her someday.
1: Absolutely. If I can, actually, I just want to comment on on one thing that I think really encapsulates Secretary Albright, which is that the two individuals that Corey mentioned, um, General Powell and Sandy Berger, with whom she did certainly have tense moments while she was in office, both became dear, dear friends of hers in her post-government service life. She was very close with both of them. Her consulting firm, which I was at when it was first established and quite small, actually ended up merging with Sandy Berger's consulting firm. And they worked very closely together. And I think it's a, a great reflection of the fact that she was a person who was not shy about advocating for her position. Mm-hmm. She ultimately, as you said, um, advocated for the policy as it emerged after the process on behalf of the US government. But through it all, she really maintained personal relationships and sort of a, a decency of, of character and pr- appreciating people as human beings, notwithstanding any policy disagreements they might have. Sure. So that's just a, a quick note, my observation of of that piece of it. But I think you know both what Corey and I say about that are important parts of of who she was in my mind. And as to your question, yeah, i was I was a teenager um, going into college, I guess, during her tenure as Secretary of State. It was in no way lost on me that it was historic that a woman had taken on this position. And to be honest, I don't remember the time that I write about in my piece, um, which is why I say my parents told me about it. But apparently I said, and I didn't hear about this until later when I was uh, working for her, that I was watching her on TV and said that I want to be like her. And I know that my impression of her long before I worked for her was that she was just wickedly smart. Um, She was very good in public speaking, she was very well spoken in conveying messages clearly, even to people who were not foreign policy experts or necessarily particularly interested in foreign policy, which I think is another part of her legacy is just making foreign policy more accessible to the general public. But yeah, my, my memory from even before I worked for her is that she was nothing less than incredibly impressive.
0: Corey, back to you. The one thing that I noticed at the time even was that Secretary Albright played both the, the short game and the long game. So yes, in the NSC meetings and in trying to get her her policy preferences across to the president, obviously she was thinking about the, the short term. But in, in the act of doing so, she also was quite good at setting the stage for longer term goals. And I'm thinking here of the expansion of NATO. She had the hard job in 1997 of going to countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, I think also Romania and Slovakia or Slovenia. I can't remember at the time, but at least the Baltics. And she had to go to them and say, guess what? We're inviting in Poland and Hungary and the, and the Czech Republic but not you. And in the act of going to, I think it was Vilnius, and talking to the foreign ministers of the three Baltic countries, she did emphasize that the United States had pledged to enlarge NATO to enhance the security of every European democracy, and that her vision of a united Europe included the Baltic states, and she would see the Baltic states as partners in achieving it, such that Yes, it took another round but the Baltics did get in. And I see that as emblematic of her ability to even if failing in the short term to achieve a, a an objective that she would make sure that those seeds were planted to achieve the longer term goal even if it was going to happen after she left office. And I'm hoping you can offer us some context on that both based on the comments you offered earlier. But you ended up at the State Department in a role in the next administration, and you got to see some of those seeds that were, were subsequently watered by Secretary Powell and others grow. So talk through that a little bit, the, the context of some of her longer term contributions to foreign policy and national security.
2: Yeah, she was very forward-leaning on the policy and pushing it both within the administration, but also, as you said, David, assuring potential allies that, you know, it was coming, it just wasn't here quite yet. And that was actually deeply resented, for example, by Secretary Perry, who, as Defense Secretary, had responsibility for being able to defend those countries if the Article 5 marker got called in and was deeply skeptical both about our ability to do it and about the judgment that we ought to do it. Remember, NATO didn't station forces in the new NATO members for the first several years, and Secretary Albright was a driver of the policy of what NATO adopted called the three no's, right, that we see no necessity. I can't even remember what they are anymore, but they were a NATO statement that basically there was no need to forward station troops in territory we had pledged to defend when they became NATO members, which, you know, was necessary to get the agreement to move forward with membership, but made defense ministries, most especially the American Defense Ministry, really nervous at the time. And so the fact that the Secretary of State was so forward-leaning, both in private and in public, about where this was headed, you're right, it definitely pushed the policy forward and in ways that some in the Defense Department considered unfair
0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedincom people today.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Another aspect of policy during the uh, second term of, of Bill Clinton was the wide range of conflicts that the United States wasn't used to dealing with as, as, as front burner issues. And we can talk about everything from Somalia to, to Bosnia and Kosovo to Haiti. And it goes to the case of Rwanda, because President Clinton had said repeatedly after leaving office that his failure to act in Rwanda was the biggest policy mistake of his presidency. And Secretary Albright agreed with that, saying it was her greatest regret from that time as well, but also pointing to the fact that there were a number of issues that frankly had even better information coming in, although they weren't on the scale of Rwanda, that the United States was in a foreign policy challenge that was not like the height of the Cold War, that there were the proverbial many snakes in the garden instead of the single dragon in the garden. And I'm hoping you can offer some perspective on that as well, which is in the 1990s, how different the foreign policy challenges seemed to those who had been trained in government positions earlier in the Cold War And how it was that the system and the personalities involved adapted during the 1990s to that?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And you're right. I think the shift away from a predominant focus on the Soviet Union and more diversified, diffused challenges, which nonetheless really matter for stability and prosperity and security really starts with the base force, the reconfiguring of American military requirements setting under General Powell and the Bush administration. So the base force, which cut about a third out of the American military and dramatically reduced the budget, acknowledging the end of the Cold War. And it shifts force planning from You know, the major war with the Soviet Union to a regional focus Mm -hmm. and to the emergence of instabilities. But the Clinton administration pushes that much more push the notion in the national security strategy that threats can emerge from within societies and need to be dealt with there before they become international challenges. One of the real accomplishments. And it often gets overlooked in Secretary Albright. You know, Jesse Helms was the chairman of the Senate uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. And she built a positive, constructive, forward looking relationship with him that most of us would have thought impossible, <laughs> given their political, cultural and many other kinds of differences. And that enabled a lot more. I mean, it enabled the NATO involvement in the Balkans, for example, which didn't appear there was the political space beforehand.
0: Right. Let me build on that, because that is one skill that you hope all diplomats have, and especially senior diplomats and political appointees will have. And yet our experience shows, unfortunately, that is not... Always true. Jesse Holmes famously did not agree with a whole lot of people and found it very easy to condescend. And yet, Madeleine Albright stood face to face with him and I think ended up with a level of respect that they could work together on things like that.
2: So it wasn't so much stood face to face with him. I mean, she was, she charmed him. Like they were holding hands kind of (laughs) charmed him. And it made a huge substantive difference in his willingness to give her policy prescriptions the benefit of the doubt and to give her budget recommendations the benefit of the doubt. It was a really extraordinary orchestration on her part and that it survived the debacle in Somalia.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: for example, says a lot about the depth of the cooperation she was able to build. And you're exactly right, David. We often think about the Secretary of State simply as an international actor, but their international freedom to maneuver is enabled or restrained by their ability to build the domestic political capital for it.
0: In addition to that, And not not to discount her profound impact on world affairs and national security and her public service, uh, but she also became a, a symbol of hope to many people who had never met her or who had yet to meet her, especially to refugees around the world, but also to women. And that includes people that she was a mentor to in her tenure as Secretary of State and even Beyond And Natalie, I want to pick up with you there because you did end up working with her and I'm hoping you can walk through how that came to be, why you chose to take the position of being her executive assistant and how you found her to be as a mentor to you.
1: Sure. So as I wrote about in my piece for Lawfare, um, I was, I think, in a a unique, not in the I was the only one sense, but unique in a special vantage point sort of mentee, which is that I started working for Secretary Balbright in what was primarily an administrative capacity when I was 23 years old. So uh, when I graduated from undergrad, I worked at a nonprofit organization that is called the National Democratic Institute, where Secretary Albright was the chair. Um, I worked for a, a program called the Women's Political Participation Program and got to know some people that knew her well through my work in that program. I learned about the job opening through some of those people within NDI But as I wrote about in my piece, I had applied to and just received a very cool fellowship I was very excited about to um, move to India for a year and work with a women's legal aid organization. And at this point in my career, I knew I would be going to law school, but I wanted to spend a couple of years sort of in the real world before going back to school. So I I went through the first couple of rounds of interviews thinking, these are great people. I'm so fascinated by this, but I'm really excited about India. Mm -hmm. And when I went to my last interview with Secretary Albright, as I, I wrote in the piece, she came in, she was wearing red high heels and a ladybug pin and was extremely charming. I remember being just amazed when she walked in the room that she had this incredible presence, despite the fact that she was very short which is something she made fun of herself about a lot. And by the time I left, there was just no question in my mind that I had to take this job. She was such an extraordinary person, and she made it clear without ever saying so, but just by the nature of our conversation in the interview, that just being next to her and, and learning by observation, even in an administrative capacity, would be a learning and a growth experience that I could not replicate in any mm-hmm. other job and that is what I found to be the case. It was an extraordinary position uh, and a real privilege to just be able to have exposure to her worlds and the people she knew and the relationships she cultivated and the work that she continued to do, which was an unfathomable amount after her government service
0: you know you you, you mentioned in the in the piece on lawfare something that I'd like to bring out. Which is that so often staffers are there to do their job, to do it quietly, to do it smoothly, to do it so that nobody notices they were even there. So being invisible is really an asset in many ways to being a staffer at that level. And yet you note that you were never invisible to Secretary Albright. What what did she do to actually bring you in beyond the role that you were technically assigned to do?
1: She... Brought me into meetings, as I say in the piece. She brought me into events, but she she brought me into conversations. You know, when she was talking to another former foreign minister, she wasn't going to ask me to interject and interrupt them. But she would ask me after the fact, "What did you think about this?" Or, Natalie, can you write up this thing that I thought was interesting and and tell me what you think? Add a little bit to that. And, and she would just give me more to do in terms of, for example, preparing her briefing materials when she knew I was interested in something. She was aware of what I was interested in and where I had opportunities to grow. And despite all of the other demands on her time, she, she made sure to pay attention to that and to help me lean into it where I could. But a a big piece of her mentorship, as I wrote in the piece, was she had a way of making you understand, even as a very young person, that you needed to assert yourself. And if you were at the table, you speak. No questions asked. You you make sure that if you're Mm -hmm. at the table, you have something to say and no one forgets that you were at that meeting. Right. She was not, as I said in the piece, she was not going to hold your hand and convince you. But she was going to try. She was going to inspire you. She was going to give you space, and she was going to make you feel like you should take the initiative and and make yourself into who you wanted to be.
0: Corey, let me take that that personal point. That you know, Madeline Albright may not hold your hand and pull you through, but she sure as hell was going to prop open the door and inspire you to have confidence to to, to grab the handle and walk walk through it. Broaden that that out from the personal to the institutional. So by my count, if I recall correctly, we had had 63 secretaries of state before Madeleine Albright, and all of them were men. Suddenly, Madeleine Albright takes the job and she runs with it. And I, I'm not sure, I think it's not a coincidence that three of the four secretaries of state starting with her tenure were women because she was followed not only by Secretary Powell, but then also by Condoleezza Rice and uh, Hillary Clinton. As a woman working in government at the time, I think people forget just how much in the early 90s to mid 90s, it was still a rarity to have women in senior positions within the national security bureaucracies. And and Madeleine Albright really did break through that ceiling and in effect, open up opportunities for people just by doing it, but also by opening those doors and inspiring people. And can you talk through that a little bit, what you saw in your career within the State Department, the Pentagon, the National Security Council staff, the areas around those in terms of how things have changed for women from the early 1990s in the decades since?
2: So I have to say, David, I'm laughing about the fact that you counted General Powell as a female Secretary of State.
0: No, <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm saying three three of the four, starting with Madeleine Albright, being women. So Secretary Powell followed by <laughs> Condi Rice and Hillary Clinton. So I, I should have stated that more clearly. But yes, uh, three of the four between 1997 and 2013 were women. But of course, Colin Powell, we can't count. <laughs>
2: so. You know the the secret heroine of this change isn't Secretary Albright it's First Lady Hillary Clinton who was such an ardent advocate of Secretary Albright's selection.
0: Ah, uh-huh. okay.
2: And I think it's important because you know behind the scenes the first lady was agitating for more opportunities for women in leadership positions in the Clinton administration. And her friendship with Secretary Albright helped Secretary Albright to get the job. And I think you're right that that, you know, it it really was a big deal to have one of the major national security jobs in an administration be helmed by a woman. It also... I'm not sure, you know, it kicked the door open so much as by that time, attitudes had changed. You know, it it was monumental. She was chosen. By the end of her term as secretary, it was normal. Mm. and And so I think really the times had changed in positive ways. And she became an important symbol of the changed times.
0: Let me close with each of you offering a, kind of an overall comment on her role in her lengthy post secretary of state career and her consulting her mentorship the fact that she continued to go around the world speaking and uh, as you pointed out Natalie building relationships with those even those with whom she had had contentious relationships with while while in government so if you had to put a phrase and, and some language around her legacy as a former secretary of state and as a opinion leader. Natalie, what what would you what would you say to that? And then Corey, I'll ask you the same.
1: I would say from my vantage point as her executive assistant and the person who kept her schedule and call sheet, she was unimaginably busy. She had so much energy. She had so many things she wanted to do. She did as much as she could, which was more than I could understand was possible. And she had a lot of things she was passionate about that didn't, you know, to the outside worlds or to the outside eye necessarily have a lot to do with each other, but she pursued all of them. So this included working on poverty issues with the Commission on Legal Empowerment of the Poor through the Aspen Ministers Forum that she liked to call her Group of Exes, um, which was a convening of former foreign ministers from all over the world to talk at a very high level about world affairs. And she also gave, you know, about 50 speeches a year. And she was, she sat on Dozens of of nonprofit boards, and she did special projects like the genocide prevention task force. She wrote two books during the time I was with her, and went on book tours. And she just was out there. She did. She worked on um, uh, Secretary Clinton and then President Obama's presidential campaigns. And she was. She just had this amazing, amazing drive, and she cared deeply about things, and she put her energy into pursuing them.
2: I really want to second Natalie's points because I'm on the defense policy board, which secretary Albright chaired. Right. And with verve and commitment and the way she was encouraging positive change, you know, I feel like I understated the importance of secretary Albright, her appointment as secretary, look at women who wear brooches on their shoulders Mm -hmm. that's a fashion statement that secretary albright made Mm -hmm. that anybody else who does it is actually marking themselves as a a a disciple of secretary Mm -hmm. albright and so many of us smile when we see those signifiers because she was an important vital vibrant, principled contributor to American national security and will cast a, a bright light that all the rest of us can stand in.
0: What a wonderful phrase to end on. Corey Shockey, Natalie Orpet, thanks for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, I encourage you to support Lawfare by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lawfare. With that comes ad-free versions of our podcasts like this one and Rational Security. You can always listen to those podcasts as well as our conversational podcast, Chatter, and the Lawfare No Bowl series, which gives you the raw audio with all of the bowl removed on important national security speeches, testimony, and other such things. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Hamza Shatu was our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.